Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The time is 5.50 a.m. in Kyiv right now. February 25th, day two of the invasion. It's been just over 24 hours since Putin launched his attack across all of Ukraine with the clear target of taking the capital. This is Eric Fogg, host of Reconsider, and I will not be doing live reporting on this, um, but I figured since it's timely, I will be doing an episode on, you know, a little bit of the live stuff that's gone down the last 24 hours, but a little more about why it's happening um, and what's going to happen next. And so welcome everyone, to reconsider where we don't do the thinking for you. So I'm going to be dipping into an old tool belt here. Um... For those who don't know, I got my bachelor's and master's at MIT in foreign policy and international relations. I almost went to the CIA. Um, I ran the uh, Fog of War blog at fogofwar.blogspot.com for like six years and had thousands and thousands of followers. Um, I tracked war pretty closely. It's it's been a big thing of mine, and I finally kind of put it down um, in 2014 to focus on Reconsider. You might notice that's when Wedged came out. Um, But I studied Russia and China extensively uh, in that nine-year period. And so I know a thing or three. And so I'm actually going to be doing a little bit more of an informative episode than a challenging episode. Um, A lot of people, just a lot of friends have said, like, Eric, what's going on? Well, those of you who are friends who have asked what's going on, this is what's going on. Um, Real quick before I get in. uh, I haven't made time to thank all the great new patrons yet that have come since uh, we have sort of asked for more money. Um, I will uh, thank everyone individually, but I am really uh, just heartened by the outpouring of love and support and money. <laughs> and um, and for those of you who are wondering how can we keep helping, this is a great episode to share with friends who are like, oh my God, what's happening? What's happening? Like I can't keep up with the, you know, the stream of consciousness from BBC or something like that. Great. This is, uh, this is the episode for them. And if you are one of those friends who just got introduced to us, this is the episode for you. And I hope you'll try a few more episodes um, uh, at Reconsider before you decide whether you want to subscribe. Um, May I recommend to start finding our Reconsidering Russia series from a few years ago, uh, where a lot of what I talk about today was talked about then, just so you know I'm not making it up as I go. So, let's get into it. Um... The human toll, the human cost of events like this is immeasurable. And I don't know how to properly describe it in any way. Um, so I won't. Uh, I've, I have no ability to put myself in the shoes um, of folks who have been on the wrong end of this. Um, I've been watching a lot of video. I've been, I've been obsessing over this last 24 hours. And um, 
you know, people who just live in these peaceful cities have bombs blowing up overhead. And, uh, you know, obviously there are, there are parts of the world where that's been going on for quite a bit. Um, Syria is one of them. And so this stuff is ugly. Um, but I want to talk about a little bit about why it happens. Um, the first school of international relations uh, at Columbia University in New York um, was set up with the express intent of attempting to end war by understanding its causes. And that's what I studied. Um, maybe I'll get back to that someday. But um, I want to talk a little bit about why this is happening, what are the war aims, what's going on, um, a little bit of what what could happen next, because nobody knows quite what's going to happen next, um, but these things have a way of uh, getting into railroad tracks that it's very hard to get off of. This is something we learned from studying World War One, in particular, um, is that sort of once you start moving the, you know, you kick the, it's dominoes, it's, a, it's boulders, it's a landslide, it's an avalanche, it's all that stuff, right? You get it moving, hard to stop. Um, let's talk about what led up to this. So, Russia, obviously, has been a geopolitical foe of Central Europe, um, all the way west to France, um, for a very long time. And, uh, and when I say a long time, I mean, like, well back into the 1700s. But it got really ugly during the Napoleonic War. Um, World War I, they were on the same side because they were against Germany. World War II, they were on the same side temporarily. But then, of course, uh, Russia took over and either annexed or uh, dominated Eastern Europe under the USSR and uh, was facing off against the entire West. NATO formed. Um, and then Russia got its butt kicked in the Cold War because communism's bad, freedom rocks. Um, and I mean, that's, that's really what it comes down to. Um, communism's not a long-term good way of running things. Um, and they spent themselves into oblivion. And they collapsed, they fell apart, um, and they've been slowly rebuilding. And there's been a lot of, you know, the Russians are very proud people. Um, there's been a lot of pain over that collapse and that rebuild. Uh, and so there's enough support for a guy like Putin who seems to be putting it all back together. Like if you look at the GDP per capita in Russia, uh, it's been going the right direction since he got put into place. Now, does that mean he did that? Who knows, right? Because it turns out uh, developing economies can grow very quickly. Um, especially if you've got a lot of oil and gas, as Russia does. And um, so Putin's got some support, and he's been sort of, he's been a lot of time consolidating power, consolidating power internally. Um, he's generally considered to be a master chess player, although uh, we're going to be talking about whether that's true, because I don't necessarily think it is. Um, and, in, and what happened was, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, NATO grew. NATO grew by a lot. So the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, for those who don't know, is very explicitly the Defend Against Russia organization. So, um, you know, back before, you know, back during the Cold War, it was all, basically everyone west of the, um, of the Iron Curtain, uh, except for Switzerland and Austria, the punks, um, and uh, didn't include Yugoslavia, of course. They were a little more neutral, but, you know, included Turkey, Norway. It's, what, sorry, when I say everyone uh, who all stayed out of it, Ireland, Sweden, Finland, but everyone else is in, right? UK, Denmark, Germany, France, Belgium, Netherlands, Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, Greece, Turkey, Canada, the United States. And they said, hey, we're here to, uh, we're here to fend off the Soviet Union if they decide to invade. And it was like super tense, right? Cold War happened. They won. But then since 1997, right, everyone thought like kind of it's going to be over. Putin has this idea that NATO promised never to expand east and kind of leave this neutral territory um, east of Germany um, and maybe not even expand into East Germany, although East and West Germany united, of course, uh, and stayed in NATO. But um, whether anyone promised anything or not, uh, what happened after 1997 was 14, count them, 14 nations joined NATO. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, um, at, the uh, at some point Czechoslovakia, but uh, Czechia, Slovakia, let's see, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, Albania, um, Croatia, Kosovo, and uh, Macedonia, and I think I might be missing one. Um, Montenegro, that's the one. Sorry, Montenegro, I do love you. And um, and in particular, if you you know if you look at Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they put NATO pretty close to Russia, and it's pretty easy when you're NATO to say, hey, 
we've got some, you know, we're going to put some defensive missiles in, uh, you know, places like Estonia, which is right next to St. Petersburg. Um, so this is all really relevant stuff that, that from Russia's perspective, this is what we talked about in Reconsidering Russia. From Russia's perspective, NATO has been encroaching on Russia. It'd be a little like, uh, you know, again, I look, just to be very clear, Russia are the super duper bad guys in this. So, uh, but we still need to think about things from their perspective to understand why this is happening. So, um, Russia, a Russian, a, a kind of pro-Kremlin Russian would say to us, well, how would you feel if, you know, a bunch of Latin American countries and Mexico and maybe Canada was thinking about it, joined a Russian bloc? That would seem scary, right? Um, the problem is, of course, uh, the, the reason that these countries joined, you know, all these countries, these 14 that joined, they were all at some point dominated by the Soviet Union, and it was really bad. So, you know, Russia kind of asked for this. They still feel surrounded on all sides, just like Germany did in the 1930s. Um, but they kind of asked for it, just like Germany did in the 1930s, by being a-holes to all of these countries and their people and, uh, you know, crushing uprisings, secret police, like the, the terrible, terrible stuff that happened under the Soviet Union. Um, these, you know, some of us forget, but these countries, they don't. They do not forget. Um, they have reason to be, they believe, at least they have reason to be afraid. So they joined NATO and said, hey, um, stay away. But from Russia's perspective, the problem is we've now got a bunch of like tanks and air bases and missiles and troops right on our border, especially right near St. Petersburg, our second biggest city. So this is bad, bad juju for us. So they didn't, they didn't like that to put it lightly. Um, Georgia was thinking about joining NATO in 2004, not the state of Georgia, of course, the nation of Georgia down in the Caucasus. Um, and Putin put a stop to that real fast by invading. Um, and basically said, look, we will kick your butt before you can join NATO um, and broke off South Ossetia and a little place called Abkhazia, um, which are like breakaway regions now that Russia recognizes as independent that nobody else does, but they still kind of run themselves and they have a bunch of Russian passports. Um, that happened in 2004. Everybody forgot about it. I was stark raving mad and never forgot about it. Um, and then... Uh, what happens in Ukraine was Ukraine had a pro-Kremlin dictator for a while called uh, Yanukovych. I'm not really great with Slavic names, so I apologize, but Yanukovych. This was after, I don't know if anyone remembers, the Orange Revolution of the 2000s. But um, uh, that was, you know, it looked like Ukraine was going to go pro-EU, pro-NATO, and uh, Russia super did not want that. So we're going to talk about this, but Russia super duper so much does not want Ukraine to join NATO. It scares the heck out of them. And so um, they went in and they supported a, um, you know, in an election, they supported a guy named uh, Yanukovych, pro-Kremlin, kind of a, kind of an a-hole. Um, and he gets thrown out during the Maidan revolution when he decides that democracy isn't really for him. So this happens in 2014. Um, the pro-EU part of Ukraine, which is to the West, um, basically they, uh, Yanukovych lost the election was like, Nope, I'm good. And, um, and so the Maidan revolution throws him out, he flees. And so what happens? So this is where the dominoes really start to line up. So Putin responds by just annexing Crimea. Why? Putin wants Crimea specifically because it's got a nice warm water port and good access to the Black Sea. Otherwise, Russia does not have a warm water port or access to the Black Sea. And so in the winter, Russia basically doesn't have a navy. Bad. Um, and so by taking Crimea, they get the port of Sebastopol back and they're able to have a navy. Um, in 2014, Russia also starts to support separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk, also known as the Donbass region. Um, you probably heard a lot about these guys. Uh, these are pro-Russian. Um, they claim to want to be independent. Uh, they sometimes claim that the Ukrainians are, uh, being mean to them or, or sorry, that's, or, or like are, you know, attacking them and, you know, it's a rebellion. So they're fighting. Um, and it's a little ugly sometimes. And Russians were definitely in these areas just under false flag operations because the Russians don't care about international law, um, or humanitarian anything. Um, but the separatist fighting has gone on for a while. So that was 2014. That was seven and a half years ago. And so what's going on? Basically, a lot of people are asking, like, well, why now? 
and it's it's basically this. Um, Ukraine has, you know, they've had an election or two since then, and they've got this like pretty pro-Western parliament right now who was thinking seriously about joining NATO. Um, and let's talk about let's talk about uh, the lead up there. So on 21st February 2019, the Constitution of Ukraine was amended. Um, the norms on the strategic course for Ukra of Ukraine for membership in the European Union and NATO are enshrined in the preamble of the basic law, three articles and transitional provisions. So this was in response, it took them five years, to the 2014 annexation of Crimea. So the annexation of Crimea happened because, oh my gosh, Ukraine is going pro-Western. Uh, if we're going to have, if we're going to have this warm water, access to this warm water port, we just got to take it. We can't depend on it being friendly. So they took it and then Ukraine said, holy smokes, you just took a bunch of our territory. We're, we're going to, we're going to take joining NATO seriously. Um, and, uh, and also after the annexation of Crimea, um, turns out like, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my actions, Sneaking up on me, public support for Ukrainian membership in NATO rose greatly. So uh, between 2005 and 2013, it was like 28%. And now it's um, jumped uh, to 69%, which is like a bigger majority than you can get for just about anything. So um, popular support for that went up. It got enshrined in the Constitution. And then in June 2021, we're getting pretty close to our timeline here, right? At the Brussels summit, NATO leaders reiterated that the decision taken at the 2008 Bucharest summit that Ukraine would become a member of the alliance with the membership action plan as an integral part of the process in Ukraine's right to determine its own future and foreign policy, of course, without outside interference. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg... Danish guy, also stressed that Russia would not be able to veto Ukraine's accession to NATO as uh, we will not return to the era of spheres of interest when large countries decide what smaller ones should do. So, uh, and Russia said, hold my vodka and watch. Um, and so it was, that was June, 2021, right? And it happened kind of quietly, unless you're Putin, at which point it happened very, 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 very loud. And so Putin basically sat down and was like, Okay, we need to do something about this. Do we have, basically, I, I, I'm now I'm speculating, but like, do we have a choice at this point? Because Ukraine's totally going to join NATO if we don't do anything. So what do we got to do? We just got to get in there and mess it up and make sure it doesn't join NATO. So uh, they built up. Uh, they in February they you know recognized Luhansk and Donetsk as uh, independent. They occupied those, and it looked like just for a hot second like they were going to stop there, but then nope, they came straight in for Kiev, and it's been awful. So that's what triggered it. Um, it's uh, basically, it is, this, this whole series of dominoes is totally Putin's fault for annexing Crimea. Um, and uh, I remember a, a former friend, uh, she's a Russian-American, uh, complaining that Crimea was given to the Ukrainians by a drunk Gorbachev one night. Basically, they don't deserve it. Basically, it's Russian territory and they should have it back. Which, you know, uh, apparently that's how some Russians feel about it. Um, but obviously, this is a gross, horrible, unprovoked violation of international law, sovereignty, and all the things we hold dear to try to maintain uh, peace in the world. Um, and not return to, you know, the 20th, 19th, 18th, 17th, 16th, 15th, 14th, 13th, 12th, 11th, 10th, etc. centuries. So, uh, so yes, this is Putin's fault. Um, but the reason is that the accession of Ukraine to NATO would be unacceptable for Russia. This is pure geopolitics. Russia already has what it considers, and frankly kind of are, enemies at the gates. Um, Estonia, the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and the Baltic Sea are a knife to the throat. Um, and Ukraine joining NATO would be a knife to the underbelly. It would give, um, it would give the United States and uh, kind of other anti-Russian nations the ability to put troops and tanks and missiles and planes 
um, down in Ukraine, which sticks into the, the underbelly, as it said, of Russia and would allow for a pretty easy two-pronged invasion. Just go right around Belarus. Don't even bother. Um, and just go through the Baltics and through Ukraine right towards Moscow and St. Petersburg. And boom, done. Um, it would be kind of a death knell for Russia. Russia would all would forever be a maybe at best regional power, but even then not really. And the region would be like Central Asia, who cares? So it's kind of the last straw. Like earlier when Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania joined, Putin couldn't do anything about it. He wasn't, he didn't seem strong enough or feel strong enough. But now he feels strong enough to do something about it. He can go kick, um, kick Ukraine's butt or at least think so. So what are, um, so the, yeah, the whole idea is prevent at all costs Ukraine from joining NATO. And basically, I think Putin realized that he's pissed off Ukraine enough and failed to provoke regime change from within that he just has to go whole hog, send the army and be like, gotta do it myself. So um, the primary war aim is regime change. Um, the uh, Michael Kaufman, the director of Russia studies at the CNA think tank, says, quote, it is a military operation with maximalist war aims whose ultimate aim is regime change. Um, and U.S. intelligence has warned that Putin aims to topple Ukraine's government, round up prominent Ukrainians, quote, to be killed or sent to camps and install a puppet regime in Kiev. When Putin speaks of, quote, denazification and, quote, bringing Ukrainians to justice, this is exactly what he means. So he wants to. So, like, this is. Look, if this sounds like super Nazi, uh, it is, right? Like Crimea and um, uh, the Donbass region where the Sudetenland, um, this is invading Poland. So uh, it's as bad as it sounds. And um, so he wants to install a pro-Kremlin government. He wants to murder the heck out of the opposition. Um, In Putin's words, referring to the leaders of the Maidan revolution, like, this is the person we're dealing with here. Quote, we know their names and we will find them and bring them to justice. Right? Again, this is is like, uh, Putin has been doing all sorts of weird propaganda about how, like, the Ukrainians are Nazis and they're oppressing the Russian people in Ukraine. It's just wild. Um, Of course, he wants to put Russian military bases in Ukraine. Um... I don't know about whether he wants to annex the whole dang thing. Maybe. Um, Ideologically, he definitely wants to do that. So maybe. Or just be a vassal of Russia. Um, Although that didn't work out so well last time, right? The Ukrainians were able to um, declare independence uh, in a referendum that like passed with like over 90% um, to break away from the Soviet Union just before the Union collapsed. Um, So you may not want to give the Ukrainians the opportunity to even pretend they have a government. Otherwise that, uh, you know, even the pro-Soviet government in Ukraine at some point voted to leave. Um, and so I think attempting to annex it is a, is a possible war aim here. Um, so, you know, again, from Russia's perspective, this is all about security or is it? So this is where, um, it's hard to sort through the propaganda BS because, you know, Nothing that comes out of Putin's mouth is really reliable. Um, Nothing that comes out of Russian state TV is reliable. Um, It is a giant machine of propaganda and lies. Um, And and they have, for decades, uh, been masters of sending propaganda to create disunity in Europe and the Americas. Um, You know, and they, of course, propagandize their own people with all sorts of crazy stuff, such as the Ukrainians are a bunch of Nazis. They don't have free elections. Um, You know, the uh, and and the current comedian president is like leading genocide in eastern Ukraine. Um, It's just silly stuff. But as look, as we know from, you know, this is the thing, like it's easier than ever before to. And I've talked about this with like, you know, uh, in I think in October or something. Um, regarding media technology and political polarization, like it's easier than ever before just to like make stuff up. If you go to like Snopes right now, there's all sorts of falsehoods that like about the Ukrainian war that Snopes is fighting. The, the, in the words of Terry Pratchett, a lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth has the time to get its boots on. Great book, The Truth by Terry Pratchett. And so, so there's a lot of BS coming out of it. I'm not even going to try to fight it all. Um, but here's what Russia says that like, gives us a sense of what's going on. Um, he says that Russia cannot feel safe, end quote, due to the threat from Ukraine, whatever that threat might be. Um, he says that 
Russia needs to, quote, protect people subjugated to bullying and genocide and aim for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. So that's regime change, um, you know, no independent military uh, and no Ukrainian leadership. Um, it needs to be freed and cleansed of the Nazis. Mr. Putin spoke uh, of bringing to court, quote, those who committed numerous bloody crimes against civilians. So he's pretending that this is a, you know, he's pretending that this is a humanitarian operation, of course. Um, but here's where we really get into uh, his understand or Putin's, Putin's mind. Um, uh, because let's talk about what he's saying not leading up to this, right? Because everything leading up to this is calculated propaganda. But what has he said before? So regarding NATO, he said, quote, we have nowhere further to retreat to. Do they think we'll just sit idly by? So this is regarding NATO's encroachment on Russia, right? We can't go back any further. Are we just going to sit idly by and let them gobble up these countries one by one? It doesn't matter if they want to join. Everything is power politics to Putin. And in a lot of ways, everything is power politics, right? And the U.S. just happens to be winning these countries through their own will, right? Diplomacy, convincing them to join, you know, but when it looked like countries were going to go communist in South and Latin America in the 1960s and 70s, the U.S. sent the CIA and sent troops and put a stop to that. Um, not that it was a good thing then, and it's not a good thing now, but it's the same kind of idea, right? And Russia hasn't been strong enough to prevent that. So again, imagine a United States where a bunch of Latin and South American countries are already communist and very aligned with Russia, um, and then Mexico's thinking about joining. Um, that's how Putin feels. And uh, yeah, and, and the fact that this is the will of those people through a democratically elected peaceful government is irrelevant to him. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, again, power politics, protecting Russia's security interests. But there's more to it. And I think this is the part that gets really interesting. So um, last year, President Putin wrote a long piece describing Russians and Ukrainians as, quote, one nation. And he described the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 1991 as, quote, the disintegration of historical Russia. He has claimed modern Ukraine was entirely created by communist Russia, um, which I'll explain in a sec, and is now a puppet state controlled by the West. Uh, so Ukraine as a state first came about in 1919. Um, the Bolsheviks, who, you know, took over Russia during the, um, uh, during the First World War, uh, in the middle of the Russian Revolution, or at the end <laughs> of the Russian Revolution, um, they allowed for a lot of states to become independent. Um, they were pro-nationalist because they were an internationalist communist group. Um, and so Ukraine had been dominated by Russia um, or and been part of the Russian Empire. And Putin believes that their, their kind of nationalist claims are illegitimate. They're not actually a separate people from Russia. Um, he has written like various tracts about this. He has written papers. He has given speeches about it for decades, um, since at least 2005. And it's very, very clear. Putin thinks that Ukraine is fundamentally part of Russia, uh, much in the same way that I think most Chinese people think that Tibet really is fundamentally part of China. Um, and 
he, you know, he's, here's a quote from him, you know, quote, one people, a single whole. Um, and he's been so zealous about it. And I think this is where he gets irrational, right? It is, it is a matter of like cosmic right and wrong to him from all indications we have. And I've got a bunch of links um, about where, you know, some like, you know, intelligence folks from the UK and the US who study Putin, right? Because there's a whole bunch of people where Putin is their expertise, um, where they believe that he is like genuine, that he's like least calculating and most genuine when he's talking about Ukraine being part of Russia. He really believes it. And so this is personal for him um, in a way that like, the thing is the guy is a mad dictator, but he's not just like selfish, right? He's not just trying to milk Russia for all it's worth to help him. He's trying to empower Russia. Um, you know, much like Hitler was not trying to milk Germany. He was trying to make Germany great again. Um, Putin's trying to make Russia great again. And, um, and this zealousness, this obsession with Ukraine may be where he has kind of like made a bad move. Like he's always been seen as a master chess player, always a step ahead of the West. Now, part of it is that the guy is just a brinksman. The guy is willing to risk everything. So he risked everything in Georgia and he risked everything to take Crimea. And he's risking way more, I guess, everything. He risked a lot. And he's risking everything on Ukraine. Um, and we'll talk about why in a bit. Um, and so, uh, oh, I have this note out of order, right? He's also argued that if Ukraine joined NATO, the alliance might try to recapture Crimea. Very so, very maybe so. Um, because it's, you know, Ukrainian territory. And... But this obsession with Ukraine being part of Russia, um, I think that is a lot of what's really going on here. And um, I think that's driving this as much as or more than uh, simple security needs. Because the security needs of Russia might actually, this might actually backfire in a big way. And if we see, if we start to see this backfire, right, this is the evidence to tell us that, like, no, Putin is not just a master chess player. Like, he, he is a good chess player, but he's not perfect, right? There's this sense of invincibility that he seems to have. He's very good at projecting it, right? In Russia, a lot of people think he's invincible. He projects invincibility. He kills his enemies. He's got pictures shirtless with guns, riding horses, very possibly wrestling bears, right? Uh, women want him. Men want to be him. All that stuff, right? Cult of personality. Um... Similarly, like, you know, Trump in the United States had this sense of, of invincibility that frightened Democrats and emboldened Republicans. And that's, I think, why a lot of people stormed the Capitol on January 6th, because they just felt like nothing bad can happen to Trump and we're with him, so it's going to be fine. Anyway, um, the West is, the West actually looks like they're coming down hard. And this is where I think the miscalculation may have happened. So, you know, after Georgia, if we and if we look back, right, after Georgia, um, after invading Georgia, the West did basically nothing. After Crimea, the West did, West did basically nothing. Um, and he's expecting that after, you know, after the turmoil that was Trump, Black Lives Matter, the January 6th uh, riot and um, assault on the Capitol, low approval ratings for Biden, war exhaustion in the United States, um, this sense of, like, economic grumbling, um, he was expecting sluggishness. He was expecting disunity. Um, it was not a bad assumption, but it was a little bit like I have seen them at Munich and they are worms, right? Or like, you know, as, as Hitler also, as Hitler said of Russia, uh, they're a house of cards. Once you kick the door in, they will come crumbling down. I think Putin thinks the same of Ukraine. Um, I think it seems that Putin actually believes some of his own BS. And this is part of the problem of like being a dictator for too long, surrounded by yes men, surrounded by people who are afraid to challenge you, is you start to believe some of your own BS, right? Trump clearly believes a lot of his own BS. And it makes him, uh, you know, it, it makes it causes him to make a lot of mistakes. Now, it makes him irrationally confident in himself. Um, which can go a long way, but it causes him to make mistakes. And I think Putin um, is also starting to believe his own BS. He believes in his own invincibility. And I think he also believes that Joe Biden is senile. 
Um, I, you know, again, if you start to see like conspiracy theories popping up either from the left or the right, there's a decent chance that it's coming from a Russian troll farm. We have a lot of evidence of that. And so the like Biden is, you know, that it's like weakened at Bernie's over in the white house. And like Biden is totally lights out and, um, or like lights off, no one's home. And he's basically just like a puppet of, you know, the, the democratic, national committee and the Clintons and the pedophiles and all that stuff, right? Like the, the wilder it gets more likely it is the Russians, but it's possible that Putin actually believes that. Um, and he didn't think, you know, he thought he would just catch Biden off his toes. I think what actually, what, what has actually been like the most impressive thing I've seen so far from the West was Biden calling Putin's moves a few days ahead of, ahead of time every step of the way, right? Biden's public pronouncements, the, the White House's, you know, press releases and tweets and such have been like, this is exactly what Russia's going to do. The, we've got the intelligence. Putin, we see you. We know what you're going to do. Um, and the thing is, remember when I said, like, once you start kicking down the dominoes, it's really hard to go back, right? So Biden made these public pronouncements and he looks like Nostradamus, right? A lot of people are like, dude, chill out, right? Things may not turn into war. And he's like, they totally will. Putin's totally already made up his mind. This is, this is happening. So, you know, look, you don't have to listen to me, but I'm right. And he was right. And I think the genius of that, um, the genius of, of making that, you know, is a gamble, right? This is the, this is the thing about chess. You make a move, you see what the other person does. And, uh, because, and, and I think like Biden and, you know, and his administration kind of correctly predicted that Putin was so committed and that like the wheels were in motion that Putin was going to do exactly what Biden predicted he would do. And he did. Um, and so what does that do? Well, it makes Putin look like a a-hole on the world stage. But more importantly, two things happen. One, Putin's sense of like mastery and genius is shattered. Right. Biden saw this coming a mile away. And so the idea that the West had that Putin is this like genius who's like completely unpredictable and like is always four steps ahead playing 40 chess when everyone else is playing checkers eh, gone. Absolutely gone. Because Biden was like, I see every step you're taking three steps ahead at three days ahead. So like you're not some genius. You just, you just have a plan and you're executing on it. And our intelligence sees everything you're doing and we know everything you're doing. So get bent, right? So this idea that Putin is invincible has started to be shattered. And so it gives a little spine to the West, this coalition to stand up against them and draw a line. But what it also does is it just totally shatters any myth-making and any propaganda that Russia has about why they invaded, right? And so like, any narrative they'd want to paint that this is just a crisis that got out of hand, that like the Ukrainians are partially responsible, blah, 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 blah. No, because Biden long ahead of time put his reputation on the line by saying Putin has been planning this for a long time. He's already decided it's going to happen. Anything you hear from here on out is just going to be BS because he's already decided. And then Putin put out a bunch of propaganda and then invaded just exactly as the same, the exact propaganda that Biden predicted he would and then invaded on the timeline that Biden predicted he would. It was crazy. And so what it does is it, it because it shatters any um, ability for a reluctant ally to pretend that this is anything but a blatant like Nazi style act of territorial aggression in Europe, right? They can't pretend that. And so... Biden and Johnson and, um, oh my gosh, I forget the new German chancellor, but he's cool. And Macron can like go kind of like lean on someone and say, really, you're going to stand aside while basically Hitler 2.0 is stomping around Europe? Really? And so what it does is it stiffens the spines in two ways. One, a belief that we can win and two, shame at not acting in front of, you know, a free peoples, right? These are, these are democratic governments. And so these democratic governments uh, know that their people see what Biden said. And so there's this like pressure on them to act, to do the right thing because it's so obvious what Putin did. So again, I try not to do the thingy for you, but like, I actually think that Biden's Biden's machinations and maneuvering against Putin have been absolute genius. Um, and I think maybe Russia's long-term downfall. So let's talk about the response. 
So Germany has said Nord Stream, Nord Stream 2 is done. Um, and there are going to be probably like super duper duper harsh sanctions is, is the way it looks like it's going. Um, it could be like a form of economic isolation for Russia, right? And a lot of people are joining. The entire EU is on board. Hungary is on board. Turkey is on board. South Korea is on board, right? So you have these non-EU, non-NATO nations um, that are on board. And that's really critical because it means that there are fewer and fewer places that Russia can turn um, for economic support, right? And so their economy will will go bad. And again, one of the reasons that Putin is popular is what? Making Russia great again. Well, what if Russia's economy collapses, right? Russians don't like that. Russians don't want, like they want Russia to be great. And so if you invade Ukraine and a, you spill a bunch of blood and treasure, like a bunch of your sons go off to die and... You're now totally isolated and a bunch of businesses are shutting down and a bunch of people are out of work because the whole world is angry at you and you're cut off. It doesn't matter whether like you're feeling particularly patriotic, right? Or maybe it does, but like you're gonna, Putin's going to lose support if that happens. Um, the thing that the Europeans need to do is they need to be, and Americans to make this work is they need to be willing to put up with high gas prices and high uh, high petrol and high natural gas prices. Um, and they're already feeling it. And that might actually be why Putin felt like the timing was right as well. Um, hydrocarbons are expensive right now. Uh, inflation is high right now. Westerners are grumbling about that. And, um, and so he might have thought like, well, they're more dependent on me for oil and gas than they've ever been. And so, uh, yeah, they're going to suck it up, right? They're going to let me get away with this. Um, and it looks like, no, they won't. And the problem for Russia is that they're, in the words of a friend, they are a glorified gas station. Almost all of their economy is hydrocarbons. They don't have a whole lot else to offer. Um, they have some good software engineers, but there's not much else going on in Russia. And so if Europe starts to, you know, if Europe starts to cut Russia off, um, doesn't, you know, export uh, machinery and finished goods to Russia, um, doesn't export certain foods to Russia and and limits how much oil and gas it imports. And that would be really hard for Europe, but they may be willing to suck it up. This is the big if, I think. Um, if Europe is willing to suck it up um, and just deal with really expensive uh, gas and petrol, um, especially if like they can you know subsidize it in a way in order to support what is essentially an economic war effort, um, then Russia's toast. Russia's absolutely toast. Um, its economy will tank. And so uh, we need to keep an eye on what these sanctions look like, but they could get really, really aggressive. Um, Biden's working right now on trying to get India to join. Um, India is going to be a big, uh, uh, big if on that one. And, um, and again, this is a surprisingly unified response given past disunity and past inaction after Georgia and after Crimea. But um, again, I believe Biden, it's not just that like, Putin crossed an even bigger line at this point because, like, he's been escalating, right? Georgia's one thing, Crimea's another, the um, the Donbass is a third, and this is a fourth. So he felt like he was doing a gradual escalation, getting away with it, just like, I don't know, some Austrian guy with a goofy mustache in the 1930s, right? Same playbook, exact same playbook. Um, but he, I think he overplayed his, it looks like he overplayed his hand. Um, and uh, I don't think he saw that unity or resolve coming. Um and so, because everyone had moved on after Georgia and Crimea, right? People were still buying gas. People were still building the Nord Stream 2 after Crimea, right? Germany is still building it. They canceled it. And so it's different now. Um, and so what's next? Uh, regardless of what happens in Ukraine, what's next? The outrage is there. The West seems united. Biden seems to be at the lead. He se and he seems to have, like, Macron and the Germans and Johnson um, and Orban and certainly the Poles... Um, and my God, maybe even the Italians with him. Um, and so what's going to happen? Well, NATO is likely to put more investment into the Baltics, Poland, and Bulgaria. Um, and so the security spiral that's going on right now, right? So this is something we studied at MIT. I study it in every international relations group, the security spiral. The idea is what I do to the things I do to improve my own security or defense worsen your security and defense. All right. So let's do that again. The things that I do to improve my security defense, worse than yours. So if I get a bunch of tanks, because tanks are actually good at defense too, well, it threatens you. 
So you get more tanks. And now all of a sudden I'm like, holy smokes, look at all those tanks. I need more tanks. Right. And so this is the security spiral. Um, same thing with, I mean, what's what happened over the past eight years is a security spiral, right? To improve its security, Russia took uh, Crimea. And so that significantly worried Ukraine and worsened their security and said, we'll join NATO. But them joining NATO worsens Russia's security. So this is the security spiral. And it's one of the ways uh, that's commonly accepted that war happens. Um, and so the security spiral can continue because NATO is likely to put more into the Baltics, Poland, and Bulgaria. Russia will feel more threatened. Um, what's interesting is like the kind of the, there was this like era of peace, right, in Europe since World War II, even with the Cold War. In Europe, there wasn't a ground war. Now there is. Um, and so that like, in some ways, the world order is shattered. Like it's a big deal. This is going to be a watershed moment. Like you'll remember where you were when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, because general peace is not a thing anymore. And so what does that mean? Like overreaction maybe, but like alliances are the only way to be safe, right? Because the world doesn't have, like one thing that does seem to have changed is the world doesn't have the kind of like unity and belief, like the West doesn't seem to have the unity and belief in itself that it can defeat evil and deter um, territorial aggression the way that it did in uh, Operation Desert Storm in 1991, Right. Iraq had invaded Kuwait and basically the whole Western world is like, absolutely not. Right. And they went to war. Now, of course, Russia has nukes, so it's different. Um, but, you know, China, who also has nukes, is going to be watching this closely regarding things such as Taiwan um, and what they could potentially get away with. So. Um, yeah, so that that sense of peace is shattered and um, alliances seem to be the only way to stay safe because it's definitely like what Russia's definitely not going to do uh, in this is invade a NATO country. Right. I, even some friends of mine that I think that study the military are like, could he just keep going? It's like, well, he could, but he's not gonna because it's crazy because um, invading Ukraine isn't crazy. It's dumb. Um, it's backfiring. And he could have maybe got away with it. He would not get away with invading a, EU or in particular NATO country. And so I think more countries are going to look for and join alliances to protect them. Um, NATO will hopefully get, NATO might get stronger from this. Um, it is a test for NATO, but it looks like NATO is going to get stronger. They're going to bind tighter together. Um, and I think Finland is likely to join NATO, um, which would just be such a disaster for Russia because it means that you now have a two pronged attack just on St. Petersburg, one from Estonia, one from Finland. Um, and, uh, Finland's part of the EU now. so And so, like, why wouldn't Russia just in invade Finland to stop it the same way invaded Georgia and Ukraine? Well, guess what? Finland's part of the EU. And the European Union, while it's not a defensive alliance, is, like, close to one. And so it's much more dangerous to attack Finland and provoke the entire European Union because attack on Finland is in some way an attack on Brussels. Um, and so Finland could join NATO and it would just be such, and, and Finland's already released, like this definitely changes the conversation. Um, they released a, a press statement, the prime minister did, who had earlier said, you know, we're probably not going to join NATO under my term said this definitely changes the conversation. So like, I think Finland's going to join NATO in the next few years. Um, that'd be terrible for Russia. It would be a Pyrrhic, a truly Pyrrhic victory to, uh, install a pro-Soviet fascist puppet government in Ukraine only to have Finland join NATO. Um, it would be a defeat. It would be, it would be like a tactical victory and a strategic defeat. Um, and I think it's going to happen. And I didn't think Putin thought it would. Um, I think he thought he had the Scandinavian countries cowed, but no. Um, so again, I think, I think this was a mistake, but is there going to be world war three? No. Is NATO, will NATO and Russia fight? Not directly. Um, and, uh, you know, in the long game, I think so. the long game is I think Russia's probably hosed and I think they know it. Um, you know, their population has been in decline. Their economy has been in a form of decline. Um, the ruble is worthless. Um, their economy's weak. Long term things have not been going their way. So so like one of the things to keep in mind about Putin is he's playing with a very losing hand. He's desperate. Um, if Putin sits there and does nothing, Russia just gets comparatively weaker and weaker and weaker compared to the West, whereas China has time on their side. They get stronger and stronger and stronger compared to the West, but Russia gets weaker. And so um, and so the thing is, it's, it's not that even taking Ukraine would really turn things around. It's that when you have a losing hand 
and you're just losing with time, you get desperate and you need to make, you know, you either have to kind of accept the inevitable or make some like big bets. And he's making a big bet in Ukraine. It looks like it's not going to pay off. But like to some extent, again, if your goal is to like preserve the glory of the Russian empire, what choice do you have? Um, so I think Russia is probably hosed long term. I think the economic isolation is going to be really bad for them. Uh, obviously, it's going to be bad for them. Um, I think it will accelerate how quickly the EU uh, tries to move off of Russian gas and oil. Um, and especially just because gas and oil are going to get expensive. So it becomes like more, you know, it becomes easier to invest in wind and solar and electric cars, all that stuff. Thank you. You know, thank you, American companies who are building those. And, um, you know, not that, not that uh, Volkswagen isn't doing it either. But, <clears throat> um, and so I think like long-term things aren't going in the way. Interestingly, the only thing they have going for them is uh, global warming, which is going to like take Siberia and potentially turn into a breadbasket. And so you might have a bunch of, um, would be really interesting actually is I think like you're going to have a bunch of uh, global warming refugees move north from like Mongolia, Central Asia, stuff like that um, into the breadbasket that is Siberia. But it's going to turn Russia into this like very multi-ethnic empire, which is actually think like if you're very if you're like a Russian glory kind of person is actually a bad thing um, because the just. You know, it turns out when you have a bunch of ethnic minorities uh, occupying a large part of your country, um, it's not really good for unity. So uh, that would actually be a bad thing from Putin's, Putin's perspective, but a good thing if you're like looking at the GDP of Russia short term when that happens. So um, I think that's the deal. That's that's why it's happening. That's what I think is going to happen. You know, all of my thoughts on what what is going to happen are uh, pure speculation, rife speculation. Um, but I want to share a little bit of like what's been going on on the ground, again, about 24, 25 hours into it. So um, the initial, the initial like assault on um, the initial like assault of um, Russian missiles and such uh, was like brutal. And, um, and it, it just looked like it was just kind of such a shock and awe campaign kind of thing that, that, you know, all these cruise missiles and rockets and artillery got thrown into Ukraine and, there's only so much you can do about it. Um, and then the Russians came pouring in. And from the south, from Crimea, they made some progress. Uh, it, it looks like actually east in that Donbass region, uh, Lu, was it Luhansk and uh, Donetsk, um, those breakaway regions. Um, it looks like the Russians aren't actually making much in the way of progress. Um, and so the Ukrainians have like 100,000 troops or something there, and they're putting up stiff resistance. Um, and the other place, you know, that the, so the Russians are also coming in from the Northeast, um, looks like a big mess there, uh, from things. And, uh, but, uh, so there's a lot of Russian armor in the Northeast. Um, uh, Komotop is under siege, um, and Russian military convoys are there. So like that part's looking bad. Um, but in particular, the, uh, in Chernyiv, Sorry for my pronunciation, which is like there's a two pronged there's a two pronged invasion from Belarus because F Belarus um, coming from the north to there's like this river uh, with kind of a lake that runs through Kiev from the north. And so on either side of the river, the Russians are coming and uh, they seem totally bottled up um, and uh, there are Russian tank columns coming in um, from the northwest and that is threatening Kiev. Um, but from the northeast, uh, northeast of Kiev, near, uh, again, Chernihiv, um, uh, the Russians are totally bottled up and, and slowed down. And uh, there have been, like, you know, again, the Russians are advancing. Like, I don't think, I honestly don't think there's any real way um, the Ukrainians win this, which is unfortunate. Um, and Kiev is getting, um, you know, Russia is, or sorry, Kiev is, is getting pounded really hard by um, Russian artillery and such, uh, you know, but, um, sorry, I, I'm, I'm just kind of like looking around as I say this for like the latest, but a few like kind of pieces of good news. One, um, Russia airdropped in a bunch of paratroopers, um, at the, uh, Hostomel airport, which is like Kiev's big airport. Um, and they temporarily took it. And the whole point of that was to, like, you know, prevent people from prevent, you know, officials from leaving, you know, like prevent the government from leaving. So they'd be captured and murdered um, uh, to prevent 
um, the Ukrainians from being able to get uh, supplies, you know, certain supplies in um, and to be able to just like land Russian supplies for a siege and capture of Kiev. Right. Um, that uh, the airport was taken and then taken back um, nine hours ago. So the Ukrainian army has uh, beat them and taken them back. And um, in particular, one of the reasons that's so significant is Russia would not have like landed those advanced troops if they thought they were going to get cut off. And they did get cut off. So right now the Russians are like 20 miles from Kiev. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's a lot. It turns out that the airport is closer than that, right? So so the Russians have not advanced nearly as far as they thought they would. The Ukrainians are putting up, um, you know, sort of all like kind of reports from the, the U.S. and U.K. ministries of defense so that the Ukrainians are putting up a much stiffer resistance than would have than the Russians expected, so the Russians are in a bit over their heads, maybe. Now, they may even take Kiev, but it turns out there's a lot of Ukraine, right? Um, and the Ukrainians aren't going to fold the way that the French did. Sorry, French, in 1941, 1939, whatever, 1941. Sorry, 1940, 1940. Um, they're not going to fold in the same way. Um, this is a different time uh, than World War II because in World War II, people thought that everything was going to be fine if you got taken over, like everyone kind of get over it. But um, the Ukrainians are putting up very stiff resistance. The Russians may be in a little bit over their heads. Um, there are a few other like, uh, there are a few other kind of like signs of, of like good news um, for the, uh, sorry, reports of good news if you're pro-Ukrainian where like Russian uh, Russian columns of trucks have been destroyed from like, you know, missiles and such. Russian a column of Russian tanks has been destroyed. Platoons of Russian soldiers have been captured um, and held as prisoners of war. There's apparently, my favorite story going on here, and why we're getting a little Top Gun music, is my favorite story is that the uh, there is a fighter pilot known as the Ghost of Kiev who has taken down uh, no fewer than, apparently, allegedly, who knows, but, but I hope it's true, um, has taken down no fewer than six... Uh, Russian fighter jets, which is just a truly ridiculous number for a single jet to take down um, of an advanced, you know, of another advanced military. Um, just incredible stuff. And uh, and so it's like giving, you know, the in this war, Putin needs to, like, if he wants to succeed, he has to not just, like, beat, you know, beat the Ukrainian military. It's not about killing enough people. It's about breaking the will of the Ukrainians to resist. And so obviously there was this like shock and awe campaign followed by what was supposed to be a blitzkrieg. And oops, Russia has not advanced nearly as far as it wanted to during the first day, which is throwing off the timeline, right? Which means that a lot of, again, a lot of those troops that para dropped ahead, they got surrounded and captured, which means that the Russians now don't have that. They have to rely on just kind of pushing through the front lines. They're not as much behind Ukrainian lines anymore. And so, like, you know, again, I can't imagine, unfortunately, the Ukrainians really winning this unless, um, unl you know, the only way I can imagine the Ukrainians winning this is if it gets, like, bogged down and ugly enough that a, you know, Russian oligarch gets sick of it and just, like, kills Putin and just says, hey, we're done, we're moving on here. Who knows? I know not nearly enough of Russian domestic politics to be able to give you any idea if that's at all feasible. But point being, um, it's getting it's it's Putin has gotten punched in the nose already big time. And, um, you know, again, I kind of like my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine as useless as that is. But it is really cool to see um, them giving him uh, giving Putin the the old run for, you know, the old what for. And uh you know, my, I, I wish, uh, you know, I wish for everyone listening from Ukraine, I wish you the best, um, or from the region, I wish you the best. And, um, you know, thanks for listening. So, uh, I hope that gave you a little bit of a sense of what's going on. And it's like a little bit, just less of like a horror show. Um, don't worry about world war three. Do worry for the people of Ukraine. Um, but I don't think Putin's going to get away with this the way that he thought he was going to. I think the guy is sweating. And uh, that, at least, is a little bit of good news. But, you know, I might be wrong. I've been wrong before. So the only one way to find out um, is to keep watching. So until then, my friends, thanks for listening. Uh, share this with a friend if you liked it, um, especially if you think it'll help them. Um, and don't 
let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric. Signing Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 